Good morning, church. Happy Palm Sunday to you. We'll be talking about that in just a few moments. Um, I do enjoy the artwork that's on the walls from our weekday preschool children, uh, but the most fun part for me are the titles that they give their paintings. So take the time to walk past and see the titles. Uh, Those weren't the teachers that were naming them. That was the actual, when the teacher would say, tell me about this drawing or painting or whatever, the kid would say, that's, and whatever they said was what went on the, the thing, and you can get all a good kick out of a lot of those. So take the time to look at those. We appreciate our weekday preschool. We have uh, right around 40% of uh, those who attend are unchurched. And so it's an opportunity for us to be able to share the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ with them as they're a part of that. We're blessed to have such an amazing weekday preschool. Well, today we're diving in, and uh, we're going to be talking about Palm Sunday, and it's not going to take very long to get to the point of the message today, Uh, but I got to tell you that in the first service, um, you know, I get excited about Sunday mornings. I love being with you guys, but um, I had to tell myself to calm down a little bit uh, this morning because I could feel my heart beating in my chest with what I, I know God is doing here, but what He has for us in store with the text today, and so we're going to dive into that. In Genesis chapter 17, we see at the very beginning of it, he says, I am God Almighty. That's El Shaddai, that God Almighty is resonating out where he gives himself a name there. Uh, But then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1, we we see that he says, um, I am the one who I am. The scripture text actually says there, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means the beginning and the end. He is the start of things. He is the end of things. And we're going to see that uh, leap off the pages today. Uh, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. And we're going to kind of resonate with the words Almighty today as we uh, dive into looking at Scripture. A couple things I want to tell you. We're going to start out in the book of Psalm. Yes, you heard me correctly, Um, and I just wanted to say that it's okay if you're one of those who are using our journals that we've given you, and you're taking notes in the book of Genesis. It's okay to write notes about Psalm in your Genesis journal, okay? So you don't have to flip back to the back and go, oh, it's all connected. And, and we're going to see how it's layered together and connected today. And there's some things that, I don't know about for you, maybe you already know the stuff, but when, when this was uh, leaping off the pages at me, I just couldn't sit still. I had to stand up. There were several times I just walked out of my office and walked down the hallway thinking, oh my goodness, where have I been in my life to not know these things? So this is Psalm chapter 8. Verses 1 and 2. Let's look at these, and this will set the stage and the foundation um, for where we're going today with the text surrounding Palm Sunday. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So let's go back and look at that. You have at the very beginning, O Lord, our Lord, uh, is actually two different words that are using there. The first, using, used there, get my grammar correct. I'm telling you, I'm excited. I got to slow down a little bit. Okay, the first Lord, there we go, is that better? The first Lord is actually Jehovah. And uh, Jehovah is um, the Hebrew word that means the I am. So it is the I am, our Lord, the I am. Uh, The am part of Jehovah is the first part of Yahweh. 
the word that the Jewish people back in the day wouldn't even feel brave enough to write, and they never wrote out the complete uh, word of Yahweh, and we don't know the exact spelling of what they knew it to be because they had such reverence for the Almighty. And so we pronounce it Yahweh and Jehovah. That's what's being said, said there. So the Almighty, it's like Almighty, Jehovah, old Jehovah our Lord. The second Lord there is uh, the provider, the sustainer, the, the Savior, the Messiah uh, is, what is what is meant there. And all those go together. So you've got the majestic almighty God, Jehovah, Yahweh, our Savior. How majestic is your name in all of the earth? That's the message. Honest, honestly, we could stop there, right? We could stop there, and that's, that's, that's how we could do it, but it doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 2. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. avenger. Somehow, the Lord is using the, what's coming out of the mouths and the babies to tell his enemies to basically, this is not something you should ever tell anyone because it's not nice, so they put the word still there. He's basically telling his enemies to shut up. But he's not just telling his enemies to shut up, he's causing his enemies to shut up. That's what's going on there. He's caused them to steal in some way. And he's taken the weakest on the planet, the babies and the infants, to shut the mouths of what would be the strongest against him. Follow me so far? That's what's happening in this psalm. Uh, they're saying something, but we're not told what they're saying. We just know that out of the mouths of babies and infants, something is coming that's making the enemies be quiet, and they can no longer say anything. So let's listen to it again now that you have a little bit of that context around it. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So with this in mind, let's take a look now at the account in Matthew that actually calls us out to celebrate a day called Palm Sunday. Uh, we kind of understand it's called Palm Sunday because on that day, uh, if you've pulled all the Gospels together, this particular triumphant entry is what we call it. When Jesus was coming into the town, he was coming into the city. We call that the triumphant entry. Um, on that day, uh, when you pull all the Gospels together, you see that they were actually taking palm branches and they, were, they were, had broken them off the palm trees and they were using them to shout Hosanna. They were using them to lay them on the ground. They were using them in a bunch of different ways. And so now we call it Palm Sunday or the triumphant entry, the celebration of the triumphant entry. So what was going on? Let's look at Matthew 21. And uh, you're like, wait a minute. Is he stepping out of the book of Genesis? It's okay. We will end with the book of Genesis, okay? I don't mean like end of time, because I know that's what some of you are thinking. I mean, we're going to end today back in the book of Genesis to show you how it's related and how it's connected. Um, have I told you the book of Genesis is really rich? All right, so if I haven't, there you go. Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem 
and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, the word Lord there actually means sir, master, or king. You see here that Jesus is now for the first time stepping up and beginning to claim his kingship of, of, who, of who he is. All kings during that, during that time, all masters during that time had the right and the authority to request anything from anyone at any time. So it wouldn't have been foreign for them to walk up and say, our master, our king needs this donkey. But obviously Jesus knew it was there and I believe it was uh, it was planned ahead of time, right? Through the Spirit saying, that's where you're going to find uh, that particular animal that you need. Then in verse 4 it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Um, that was in Zechariah, back when we studied, went through the book of Zechariah. We came to that as Zechariah 9.9, and I told you that that was a prophecy of Jesus coming, and now here we are on, on Palm Sunday, and we're talking about he's doing that to fulfill that prophecy that was made many, many years ago. So in verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who, were sold, who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And I love this next part because of the emphatic uh, verbiage that is used there. It's not just a Jesus turned and went, oh yeah, I was kind of halfway listening. It says, and Jesus said to them, yes. I mean, it was a not a, a doubt, yes. Uh, that, that's just a power. That's, a, that's a, an authoritative yes. He says there, yes. Have you never read? Now he's challenging them. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So you see in this particular text, maybe you picked up on Jesus quoting Psalm 8. It's why we started there at the beginning for the foundation. If you were listening to Psalm 8, you might say, well, he kind of like didn't quote it word for word. He kind of added something to it. Because remember when we were reading it out of our Old Testament uh, scripture text, 
We didn't know what was coming out of the mouths of the babies and infants. But Jesus actually said, out of the mouths and the babies comes praise, uh, bringing forth praise. Well, you have to do a little bit of homework to understand what's going on here. Um, Psalm 8 was originally written in Hebrew. And that is what we get our text from in Hebrew. So we're reading it. When we read it, we read it from the translation of Hebrew. But that particular text had been translated into Greek before Jesus was born. It's called the Septuagint. Jesus knew of the Greek translation. In the Hebrew, it said, out of the mouths and babies and infants, you have established strength. But in the Greek translation, there was a jump And it said this, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus was not misquoting anything. He actually knew both Hebrew and Greek. And when he was quoting it to the chief priest, he chose the Greek translation saying that what you see going on here is praise. And he used that particular text to kind of put them in their place. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So in so doing, in so doing, when Jesus quoted this text, he was saying, I am the great I am. Remember, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name is how that psalm starts out. And then he quotes this. Have you not read that it says this? And Jesus is saying to the chief priest, I am Jehovah. Standing before you right now in flesh is Yahweh. That's what he's saying to the chief priest. And then what happens after that? There's no recording of them saying anything. What was the promise? That out of the mouths would come something that would steal the enemies? And Jesus said, have you not read that out of the mouths of babies and infants comes the praise? And they went, ah. And then it says, and then Jesus went somewhere else and just hung out. They didn't say another word. It, it, it just stopped them in their tracks. It just, it just uh, put them in their place. They had been stilled. And so, I don't know about you, but that pretty much excites me. That connection there of Jesus saying to the priest, I am. He was reiterating with them at that point, before Abraham I am. That's the tie-in there. Anybody get that? Kind of get excited about that? I don't want to out-excite anybody, but that's good stuff right there. That is amazing truths jumping off the pages of Scripture that is incredible to me. It blows my mind. I knew that Jesus was God incarnate. I knew that he walked the earth as God. I knew that he chose to sacrifice himself, but I had never caught before that he verbally said to the chief uh, priests and scribes that he verbally said to them, standing before you right now is Jehovah. Now we kind of understand why the chief priests who didn't get it because they were looking for a different kind of king wanted to crucify him. (gasps) He said he was God. And so they sought out to plan to kill the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So how does this tie in to the book of Genesis? Yep, here we are back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. Remember the promise? Remember the covenant? I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. He is stating this, by the way, before the people of Israel request a king. 
He is stating this, that kings will come from you. It's a promise. Then you look down and you can actually underline that verse and write out beside it the origin of Palm Sunday. It started all the way back in Genesis because it was a part of God's ultimate plan. Then you look at chapter 17, verses 15 and 16. He reiterates it. He says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. He's placing grace on her. He is extending his grace to her. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Listen to this. Underline this. Kings of people shall come from her. Underlined right out to the side, the origin of Palm Sunday. Because here's what God was saying. No, not Ishmael, not the fleshly line, not the human answer, but the supernatural solution. The supernatural power is what he was saying during this. In 1 Samuel, I've kind of alluded to it already, you see that the people of Israel were asking Samuel for a king. They said, we want a king. We want someone to rule us. We want someone to be over us. And, and Samuel said, no, this is not God's plan. doesn't need to happen. And they said, yes, we want one. And so they were kind of saying that we, we deserve a king. Um, and then God said to Samuel, don't fret. It's not you they are rejecting. It's me. That's what God tells Samuel when he says, we, we want this, that we, the people of Israel, we want this human solution. They had noticed that the countries around them had a king. And uh, God actually counted it to them as wickedness. But if God had originally planned to put a king in place, why was he upset with them with wanting to put a king in place then? Well, there's several reasons. They were getting ahead of God's plan. Abraham did that, right? Abraham got ahead of God's plan, and that's how we got Ishmael, right? And it created turmoil in his home. It created turmoil in his camp. It created turmoil in that land, because Abraham took it upon himself to have a human solution to what he thought needed to happen. Can we just agree for a moment? God does not need our human solutions to move his plan ahead. And when it really comes down to it, I'll take you out of the equation. I'll just speak for myself personally. He doesn't need me. He is complete in and of himself. And the people of Israel were trying to get ahead of his plan. They said, we want a king. We want a king. That was the first thing that was going wrong. The second thing is they wanted a human solution and a human celebration. They didn't want to point only at God and what God was doing them and that God, the, the creator of the universe, was leading them. They, they wanted to, to have a human solution to what they felt they needed leadership. Well, you can't blame them because they really didn't like Samuel's heirs that were set to take over. They were not necessarily godly folks that was going to take over, and so they, they brought into question, maybe, maybe we need to help God out here. He's got Samuel in front of us, but have you seen his sons? So let's, let's help him out a little bit. But the biggest uh-oh for them was they wanted to be counted in and with the other nations. They wanted to be somebody. And they knew that a king would establish that for them. 
God was saying, I have carved you out as a nation to be not, in, not of the world, but only in it. I have carved you out to look different. I have carved you out to be a different type of people. You're not supposed to match the world. But the people of Israel are saying, we want to match the world. Maybe we can lead out with a great king that will be feared by all. And we tend to do the same thing in our own thought process. But God viewed their hearts as evil. So then you fast forward to on Palm Sunday. We can clearly see that the people once again wanted a king. Remember Zechariah, he had prophesied that your king will come in on the colt of a donkey. Jesus says, hey, disciples, go out and get that donkey and bring it in because I'm going to fulfill the prophecy that was given back in Zechariah, and I'm going to ride in on a donkey as their king. And who can blame them? They've been waiting hundreds of years for their king to show up on the scene. The problem is, is they thought it was going to be a warrior king. They thought it was going to be a king that was going to ride in and put the Roman government in their place. They thought it was going to be a king that was going to ride in and say to, the, say to the leaders of the Roman government, you have no more authority, leave. That's what they were anticipating, and they were excited about this king, and they were seeing prophecy unfold before their eyes as Jesus was walking in, uh, riding in on the donkey. But here's the thing. At the beginning of time, God said, I am all you need. In the garden, he said, I am all you need. And God had plans to provide a king all along, but God's people wanted a king so they could be like the other nations, to stand among them, to have a significance in human history. Rather than to allow things to point to God alone, they wanted to have a significance that maybe showed God's work in their life, but it would make them somebody. The problem they had that they missed with Jesus that caused them to ultimately put him on the cross was they didn't understand what kind of king he was. He was not like the king that Israel wanted. He does not take from people. Now you say, well, he took a donkey. Well, it says in the text that they told them clearly, we will bring it back forthright. They, were going, they said, we're going to use this for our master, and we'll bring it back. So he, he didn't steal the donkey, okay? Let's kind of rest our minds there. He sent it back to them. He gives gifts The best gift of all was his life to provide eternal life for us. His battles do not involve earthly bloodshed, but are spiritual victories over the hearts of his enemies. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. He did this by dying on a cross, which we'll celebrate his resurrection after dying on that cross next Sunday as we come together. His reign is righteous. And we who trust in him enter into his eternal kingdom. Jesus was asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, you say that. But I tell you, my kingdom is not of this world. God said, I am enough. So he created a line that led people back to the king of kings, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. In the garden, God was enough, and today, Jesus is enough. Genesis 17, 1, I am God Almighty. 
El Shaddai. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Through miracle birth, God showed through a long line of descendants, starting with Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, the original design of his plan to bring the final miracle birth, Jesus Christ, who would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's part of his plan. It's part of his design. And on Palm Sunday, the king hits the scene in his final preparation to be the sacrifice for all who will give their lives to him. He helps prepare his disciples during the Last Supper as he met with them in the upper room. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus steps up to the plate and he says, I am the appointed king. Cleans out his temple, heals people, and meets with his disciples to break bread for the final time. Many believe that this was taking place during the Feast of the Tabernacles, which would have been a celebration time anyway to celebrate God. That's why they had the palms readily available to celebrate in that way. And now Jesus hits the scene during that time of celebration that says, oh, by the way, all of those law things that you were doing to celebrate God, all of these other things you're doing to celebrate God, he is standing in your presence right now. And they mistook what he meant by that, misunderstood who he was, and they put him on a cross. But before then, he said, I want to show you a demonstration demonstration of the marriage of the Christ with me. And he said, I have the cup and the bread. And he, he flipped the whole law and he flipped everything that had happened up to that point upside down for the disciples. It took them a while to grasp what he was talking about. But he joined them in the upper room and he took the bread at the end of the supper. So if you'll find your elements for the Lord's Supper we as a body will remember Christ setting his standard for who we are today and how we follow him. Jesus took the bread and it meant something to them at the time when he said, this is my body that is broken, that must be broken. It, it kind of pointed to all of the law and the sacrifices the bloodshed on the altar uh, in the temple that was part of the Old Testament. He said, I'm taking all of that right now. I'm taking all of that in. I'm taking that on me, and I'm telling you that I'm going to be the ultimate sacrifice. Can I just stop there for a second, and before we take communion, can I get you to think about something? What other faith in all of the world says that their God came down and sacrificed himself for all? No other faith claims this, especially the part about him being alive again. It's supernatural, it's powerful, it's reserved for him. No other faith can claim it. I think he holds that in reserve for himself. You could say, well, it'd be easy for some faith to lie about it, and it would come out as a lie. But I think their mouths are shut because they can't claim it. Because Jesus on the third day defeated death with death so that we could spiritually and supernaturally be made right with God. And then you get that full circle 
that we were created in the image of God, sin came in and made us one off of that image, and we, through watching the lineage kind of come down to the God that was good enough, come down to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, so that when we receive him, we once again are coming into being the image of God. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. How powerful it is to take communion, to remember that the God that spoke the universe into existence was willing for each of us to come and to walk on the earth and to say, your righteousness will never match up, but mine will, and I will sacrifice for you so that when you call on my name and claim me, my sacrifice, my broken body, my shed blood will make things right again. And so now when God looks at me, a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, when he looks at me, he doesn't see Daniel as perfect. He sees me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that's what washes me clean. And then he sees the sacrifice of his son and recognizes me as price paid. And so that's why we say, and Scripture's very clear about it, that if you have not given your life to Christ, you're still exploring it. You're not sure where to go with, with the things of Jesus, that you not take communion. It's okay. If, if you don't take communion, nobody in here is going to go, <gasps> like that. It's, it's okay for you to do that, to kind of take it in. Communion is designed for the believer who has given their life to Christ, surrendered their life to Christ, and following him in in his walk. Not perfect, right? Nobody in here is perfect, but we've given our life to Christ. We recognize that he did what he said he did, and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And so Jesus, with his disciples, he took the bread, and he picked it up, and he broke it. And he began to pass it around. He said, this is my body that is broken for all. Do this in remembrance of Christ. Then the scriptures tell us that immediately after that, he picked up the cup, representing the marriage supper of the lamb and the the marriage of the lamb, and he picked it up and he said, this cup represents my blood. Scripture's very clear because of the iniquity and the unrighteousness of the world that the only thing that's going to pay for that is the shed blood. And Jesus said, I'm willing to do that. And so he picked up the cup and he held it up before his disciples and he said, this cup represents my blood. And we do this to remember Christ. Father, we come before you completely humbled in the realization of what it really means that Jehovah walked on the earth to come back and buy back supernaturally his people. And so during this Holy Week, may we be mindful every single day 
of the glory and the grace and the mercy that is presented to us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You on you alone deserve the praise. So may we be found praising you. Of course, in his wonderful name we pray. Amen.